Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear Douglas Wilson's talk, Dealing with Opposition to Reformation, from our audio collection titled, Working Toward Reformation. In honor of Reformation Day being just a few days away, we thought we would supply a little fodder for your life. If you would like some more, I highly recommend Douglas Wilson's Rules for Reformers that you can buy at canonpress.com. Well, the, the topic, the concluding topic here is uh, dealing with opposition to Reformation. Dealing with opposition to Reformation, which may take many different forms. In fact, you can, uh, you can bank on uh, the, the certainty of it taking many different forms and coming at you in many different ways. Now, one of the things that is going to be, um, maybe some people in your home churches, maybe some friends, maybe family, are thinking, great, going, uh, sending you off to a conference like this is like giving whiskey to a two-year-old, <laughs> and, and one can only expect horrible things to come out of it, and people getting the wind in their sails and, and starting to insist on things and fight over, fighting over things that they shouldn't be fighting over, and, and it's also controversial, and, and why can't we just... Uh, be the way we were, and why do we have to keep pushing these issues? And 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 controversy will erupt if it hasn't not if it has not already erupted. The, and and this controversy and this opposition can take many different forms. We sometimes forget that this is not new either. It's always been this way. And going back to the plaster saint problem, we assume that uh, not only did the great heroes of the faith uh, float two inches above the ground throughout their lives, but um, the only conceivable opposition to them would be uh, people with a diabolical, manifestly diabol diabolical presence and so forth. And, and we fail to realize that in the church, with people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, people who profess to be reformed or profess to understand the truth, oftentimes came at uh, godly figures, people that we now recognize as being tremendously influential in our history and and people who did wonderful things, and yet they were attacked throughout their lives for many different reasons. Uh, in other words, we respect them when they're safe in the ground. Okay, When they're safe in the ground, we appreciate them and their contributions, but when they're around, when they're alive, they're a pain in the neck. And uh, to uh, start off with one example, Jonathan Edwards, who is uh, I would say almost universally respected in the Reformed world and generally highly respected outside uh, the Reformed uh, world as a great theologian and preacher and so forth. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said uh, four years before he died, quote, I was often charged with acting only from sinister views, with stiffness of spirit and from pride and an arbitrary and tyrannical spirit. Okay, uh, he was uh, kicked out of his church. Right? He was a, a, a pastor for many years, a, a, a preacher. Uh, God had graciously given revival in the church that he was later kicked out of because of his uh, stand for the truth. And it was not just uh, people coming and saying, uh, Pastor Edwards, we, uh, we regretfully and charitably and humbly disagree with the position you've taken here and we've come to a parting of the ways. That's not how it happens. Right? That's not how it happens. Uh, people have a very difficult time disagreeing about the substance of an issue and doing it uh, charitably. Oftentimes, and, and regularly, uh, it will veer off into other, uh, other issues. In logic, there is a, a general category we can call fallacies of distraction. There, um, when you're losing an argument and someone is pressing the point on you and you say, look, Halley's Comet. You know, or uh, that's a that's a fallacy of distraction. You've not answered his argument, or his shoes untied, or whatever. That's a fallacy of distraction. You're changing the subject, and there are many different ways to change the subject. One way to change the subject is to attack a man's person. It's called the abusive ad hominem uh, fallacy, uh, where you attack the man and not the argument. Okay, you attack the man and not the argument. Now, why do people do that? Well. Uh, let's assume for the moment that in this particular situation you are articulating the truth. You're speaking the truth. You're seeking to present the truth in love. And the truer it is, 
whatever it is you're saying, the truer it is, the harder it is to hit. All right? In other words, the truth is a difficult target. The truth is a difficult target. You, on the other hand, are an easy target and a lot more fun to shoot at. Okay? You react more spectacularly. You, um, you provide more fun to the sniper. You, you know. When they shoot at the truth, not much happens. When you shoot at the truth, not much happens. When they shoot at you, all sorts of interesting things start to happen, and they can get the results that they want. And excuse me, when I say they, sometimes I'm going to be speaking of people outside the church. Sometimes I'm going to be speaking of people inside the church. Sometimes I'm going to be speaking of people who are professing Christians but are not regenerate. Other times they are going to be regenerate professing Christians. You're going to be with them uh, forever and ever in eternity. But they're still not thinking like Christians at this particular moment in, in time. Now, you say, well, what about the times I'm not thinking like a Christian and their opposition to me is, uh, is well-grounded? Well, then the truth has nothing to fear. And because the truth has nothing to fear, those who have the possession of the truth do not need to resort to ad hominem attacks. All right? So if, if someone is uh, claiming to have the truth, but they, they don't argue the case methodically and carefully and charitably from Scripture, but resort to ad hominem attacks, uh, then there is a, they're, they're indicating that deep down they don't believe that they have the possession of the truth. It's like the minister who, in his sermon notes, see, often the margin, the marginalia, marginalia of his sermon notes, he, he scrawled in, argument weak, shout here. Okay? Um, now, if people are saying, argument weak, go for the jugular here, argument weak, attack their person, their character, their motives here, that what they're saying there is they don't really believe that they are in possession of the truth. You, on the other hand, who believe that you're in possession of the truth, ought to just abhor that sort of um, attack. The devil is, uh, in Greek, ha diabolos, uh, the slanderer, the accuser. All right? The devil is a specialist in the ad hominem attack. All right? That's what he does. He accuses. He attacks the person. Now, uh, I want to um, make one other qualification here. There are times when a person's character needs to be attacked. All right, remember when we talked before about ministerial qualifications, if someone is not qualified to hold their office and their character is the issue under debate, then it's pertinent to address their character. But not with a, not with a malice or a vindictiveness or a desire to draw blood, but rather with a, with a humble um, submission to the Word of God and a desire for the other person to turn and repent. Sometimes the other person's character is the issue, so it's not a fallacy of distraction uh, when you address their character, if that's what's under debate. But what happens is, uh, let me uh, present this to you in another setting. It's either uh, too small to address. If someone's character is the issue, it's either too small to address, or if it's big enough to address, it has to be addressed in a certain way. In other words, it's small enough so that love can cover it, but if love covers it, it covers it completely. All right. If it's small enough to have love cover it, love never covers anything partially. It never covers it so much that you don't have to pursue it with church discipline, but it's enough of it's poking out of the surface of love so that you can talk about it with your friends and neighbors. It's, there's never that middle category. All right. If it's, if it's big enough to confront over, you confront to the end. You just take it to the end, and that person's character is the issue, and you're not guilty of an ad hominem attack in the sense of a, of a fallacy or, a, or you're not like a devil or a, an accuser in this. But if it's too small to do that, then don't do that. Let love cover it. But there's never this middle territory where it's big enough to talk about but not so big that you have to do something about it. And that's where the vast majority of troublemaking in the Christian church occurs. Where they say, well, this is um, too big to just let go and too small to take it to the elders. Too small to take it to the elders, too small to confront them, too small to pursue Matthew 18, but it's big enough to be a topic of conversation. No, that middle ground is completely eliminated for us as Christians. Either cover it or pursue it. All right, now, uh, Jesus said in John 15, if you turn there, Jesus said in John 15, he said, remember the word that I said to you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now he's, of course, speaking to the apostles here, and he's speaking to them as ministers, his ministers, as ministers of Christ. As ministers of Christ, we do not have the option of fighting in a war where the enemy does not shoot back. And we do not have the option of fighting in a war where the enemy is going to choose to shoot at the most difficult target that you present to him, that is the truth, and refrain from shooting at the easiest target that you present to him, that is, your own person and character. Right? Your person and character is his easiest target, and the truth that you're representing is his most difficult target. So what should he shoot at? You know, if you were his military advisor, what would you tell him to do? You would tell him to shoot at the easy target. You wouldn't tell him to shoot at the hard one. Now, Jesus says, don't be surprised. A servant's not greater than his master. And this is true even of the Lord, not because he was guilty of sin, because he could throw it out the challenge, who of you can convict me of sin? And there was no uh, sin that they could prove or substantiate. But they could accuse him of it. They could accuse him of being a drunkard. They could accuse him of being a glutton. They could accuse him of hanging out with the wrong sort of people. They could accuse him of all sorts of things, which they did accuse him of. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person, presented a far easier target than the, than the truths that he was speaking, the things he was saying. And so that's what people went after. That's what people go after. That is what they, has, that, that is what they have always done. And Jesus says not to be surprised when it happens. Paul says the same thing, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, another logical fallacy, that of affirming the consequent, cannot, uh, we can't say, well, I'm being persecuted, therefore I am godly. Um, that doesn't follow. You're being persecuted in that scenario because you're being a jerk, not because, right, there are different reasons why people can be persecuted. But being godly is one of them. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world hates and attacks us in this fashion, and we shouldn't be surprised when many within the Christian church take up the cry and repeat the charges and will, and will present the same sorts of charges. Now, the fact that we present an easier target than the truth does does not mean that we should then endeavor to make it the easiest target possible. Right? That doesn't mean that we should make ourselves vulnerable and set ourselves up to be attacked. In 1 Timothy 3.7, 1 Timothy 3.7, says, uh, Paul says this, speaking again of the qualifications of a minister, an elder, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, a minister, an elder, has to strive to have a good testimony. Now, we've referred to this earlier, and, and I was uh, talking with uh, someone in one of the breaks, and, and it's quite true that if people hate, hate you for the right reason, if you, if you come into a community and, oh, we hate that minister, you know, we don't like him at all. Well, why is that? Well, because of his pro-life stand, and because he has done this, and he opposes, you know, this, uh, the latest sex ed curriculum in the government schools. That's a good testimony. That's that's good that he's hated for that reason. That's not a bad testimony. Uh, but Paul has something else here because that's con it's consistent for the world to hate you and respect you simultaneously. Ha hate and respect can be um, commingled. Oliver Cromwell, who was, um, had a lot of things going for him and, and I think was seriously mistaken at a number of points, but I believe was a genuine brother in Christ and, and well-intentioned. He was the Lord Protector during the interregnum and in uh, England's uh, century of turmoil. And I think uh, well called by many of the brethren at that time, Cromwell the Destroyer. He, there were some things that he was connected with that were just tragic and horrible and destructive. But he, even his enemies and his worst enemies knew that he was a man of integrity. In other words, you could oppose him and say that what, what he's doing is wrong, what he's doing is destructive, but he is not corruptible. The man cannot be bought. The man is not um, corrupt in any way, shape, or form. So you can have a good uh, testimony even with your adversaries. A minister of Christ, an elder of Christ, in Christ's church, has to be constantly aware of those who would delight in your fall. You have to be constantly aware of the presence of those who would delight in your fall. 
It could be any number of things. It could be financial. It could be sexual. It could be uh, how your kids are. It could be any number of things. There are people who would like nothing better than to talk about that for the next three years. Right? The, and you have to be aware of them. And Paul says that the, the elders, the ministers, have to be aware of this. That has to be kept in mind when people are being considered uh, to be brought on a board or a session of elders. He must have a good testimony. Notice, not just a good testimony in the church, but he must have a good testimony with those who hate God. Right? He must have a good testimony with God-haters, with the, with the community at large. Now, this, of course, doesn't mean you have to have a referendum among the pagans every time you bring a, an elder on board, but that person's reputation, the reputation for integrity, if they're a businessman, what kind of businessman are they? Uh, if, they're in the, if they're in the professional world, are they competent? Do they have a good um, testimony there? Are they, um, are they a straight shooter? Are they, are they a man of integrity? If so, the non-Christians will know it. If he doesn't, then he will fall into reproach, and notice the snare of the devil. There are pitfalls, there are traps for those who want to represent the cause of Christ. Now, you present an easy target no matter what you do, but if you behave in a certain way, you're going, you, you turn into the broadside of a barn. Right? If you're always easier than the truth, but no sense making it easier than you have to. Now, the fact that you uh, work and strive to maintain a good testimony and a good report does not mean that you're immune from attack. The fact that you've not given legitimate offense doesn't keep people from taking a, a illegitimate offense. Look at First uh, Peter. Now, this passage in First Peter, um, I'm applying to elders, but I believe Peter's applying it to Christians in general. I just want to illustrate out of it a, um, a principle of how non-Christians act, how non-Christians behave. 11 and, uh, 11 and 12. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. All right, keep yourself clean. Your own lusts, your own desires are, going to, are warring against your soul. Uh, abstain from fleshly lusts. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice, not if they speak against you as evildoers, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, uh, living a godly life and having a good reputation among the Gentiles will not keep them from slandering you. All right? Peter says, have your conduct be honorable so that when they slander you, they may be ashamed of what they have said uh, and embarrassed by your good works in the day of visitation. All right, so the fact that you are living in a way that's honorable is not going to keep people from saying things uh, uh, slanderously against you. I referred earlier to John Bunyan being accused of being an adulterer, and, uh, which was just a, a false charge. It was a slanderous charge. Uh, and that sort of charge can be multiplied it doesn't take much energy and time and effort to make things like that up. So you can just start churning them out if you're interested in, in uh, doing that. And there are many people who are interested in doing that. So, again, it's going to happen, but just don't make it easy to happen. Don't present the kind of target uh, against which that kind of charge sticks. What Peter is saying is that it's possible to have the respect of slanderers. Okay, it's possible to have the respect of slanderers. They are saying that you behave this way, and then if someone told them that you behave that way, they would laugh because they know it's not true. Right? It's possible to have the respect of slanderers. Third point, the first, the first point here is that you should strive to have a good reputation with those who are outside. Don't present an easy target. Um, the second fact is, even though you don't present an easy target, you will be a target nonetheless, and people will attack you anyway. The third principle here is, um, I think, very important for us to keep in the forefront of our minds every day. In the midst of the slanders, recognize that your enemies have not made up a catalog of sins which is greater than the accurate catalog of your sins that God could make up if he wanted to. Okay? In other words, uh, uh, your enemies don't know the half of it. Right. Your slanderers don't know the half of it. Uh, now, they may be saying that you uh, 
we're shoplifting at Kmart, and it's not true. It was at Walmart. You know, that's what. <laughs> um, now, of course, our conduct should be honorable, so we, we're not shoplifters at all. But, of course, we, as Christians, we understand that God's law is not this simple little list that we can just easily fulfill. Now, with regard to civic righteousness, with regard to public righteousness, with regard to how we treat our families, with regard to how we do business in the community, with regard to all those things, we can be innocent of the charges levied against us all the way down to the ground. But even though we are innocent of those charges, we as Christians should cultivate a humility of mind uh, knowing that your enemies, if, if your enemies knew about you, what God knew about you, what kind of hay could they make out of that? All right, if your enemies knew about you, what God knows about you, which God has freely forgiven in Christ, what kind of hay um, could, could they make out of that? So when you protest your innocence, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, when you, when you defend yourself and you protest your innocence, do so with a biblical remembrance of your sins. You'll see this sort of thing in the Psalms, where uh, David will say, you know, I'm guiltless, I've, you know, I've done righteously, and, and David knew that he had not uh, been sinless throughout his whole life. He's referring to what? He's referring to the charges at hand. He's referring to the civic accusations made against his public person. He knew that he was not embezzling the way that they said. He knew that he was not guilty of the charges that they had levied against him. Uh, and, and yet, nevertheless, a Christian who defends himself in that way has to remember the existence of this other realm, his relationship to God. Always recognize that your, your enemies uh, don't have a fraction of an idea of what a great sinner you are. Okay? If your enemies knew what a great sinner you were, they could really uh, attack you effectively. God, who does know these things, has chosen to freely forgive you of your sins in Christ, and he is not utilizing it that way. He's not utilizing this catalog of your sins to destroy you. He has removed these sins as far from you as the east is from the west. He's forgiven your sins. You were like, your sins were scarlet. They're as white as snow. You're justified. You're freely forgiven. But if God wanted to make a catalog, if God wanted to hold your sins against you, as it says in Scripture, who could stand? Right. Who could stand in God's presence if God were the devil? Right. If God were the accuser? If God were the one, the one who wanted to see you destroyed, how, how could you defend yourself? There's no defense. The only defense is Christ. The only defense uh, from, the only way we can take refuge from God is to take refuge in God. The only refuge from Christ is in Christ. And when we turn back to him and are covered by his righteousness, then we have a defense, not our own, because we have a righteousness, not our own. And that is always good to remember in public controversies. It's always good to remember in public controversies. With regard to the public controversy, you can stand up and say, I am guiltless in this matter. I am innocent in this matter. What you're saying is not true. I have never thought that. I've never talked in that way. And yet, at the same time, you know in the back of your mind that you are a hopeless sinner. So never allow your public defense of yourself to skew your theological understanding of what you are in yourself. All right? The next... Um, the next thing, it has to follow hard on this. Do not be afraid to defend the cause of Christ in your person. Okay, do not be afraid to defend the cause of Christ in your person. Now, it would be very nice if we could just have Christ perfect over there, and all the attacks on the truth could be referred to him. Right? Well, if you want to attack the truth, then you have to attack him because he's the one that gave it. But that's not how God has been pleased to bring the truth into the world. He, um, he has, has made up this great church that is charged with the task of evangelizing the world. And you look around at the church, and um, it seems to be many times to be com composed largely of duffel puds. You know, um, people, if you're familiar with Lewis's Narnia story, all these people are so th really thick and they don't get in, they don't get it, and right you are chief, and never said a true, truer word chief, and they're, they're just muddle-headed and confused, and, and we look at our, our own condition and we walk around full of ourselves and full of our tasks, and you, um, I like to tell myself when I'm walking around busy, uh, you know, I'm just a bug, I'm just a little bug, and I'm busy trying to get from here to here, and why is God, why is God pleased to use all these little bugs? To do, his, to do his work and advance his kingdom. But at the same time, we know that we bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, and he has 
uh, freely forgiven us in Christ. And he, as it says in Hebrews, is not ashamed to call us brethren. Okay? He is not ashamed to call us brethren. And that means that we must not be ashamed of his aligning himself and his reputation and his character with us. Right? So, there are times when someone attacks your person and, and they're attacking your person because of your sin. What should you do? You should repent. You should offer your um, apologies. You should seek to make restitution. When, you're, when your person is attacked because you did something wrong, then you should seek not at all to defend yourself. But there will be many other times because you are a public figure, because you're an elder, because you're a minister, because you are representing the, the church of Jesus Christ, you will be attacked in your person and you are not the point of the attack. Your character, your behavior, your thinking, your words, the way you put it are not the issue. The cause of Christ is the issue. And when that happens, do not be ashamed, do not be afraid to defend the cause of Christ in your person. Uh, look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, start with verse 17. The Apostle Paul is going by Ephesus, nearby Ephesus, and he calls for the elders of the church to visit with them. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Right, notice how Paul is defending his person. Now, Oftentimes, modern Christians, have you ever heard someone complain that Paul sometimes sounds like a bit of a braggart? All right, a little bit full of himself, a little bit too eager to talk about himself. No, I think he, was, he understood his public office, and he understood how that office was very much linked to the cause of Jesus Christ. And he is not hesitant or reluctant at all to defend the cause of Christ in his person when it was that when that was the way it was. What manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. <laughs> how, how, many of, how many of you would be willing to stand in front of your congregation? You know how humble I am. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> uh, it's like the, who told me the joke about the guy that was given a, an award uh, at a business for being the most humble guy and a little pin and then he wore it the next day so they took it away from him. <laughs> well, <laughs> serving the Lord with all humility with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews and how I kept, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house testifying to Jews and also to, the, to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit reflects in every city, saying, uh, testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await, await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now I hope you see that Paul is talking about himself and his behavior, and his zeal, and his humility, because he knows that in this situation, it is linked directly to the cause of Christ in his person. Right? He, he brings it right into his ministry. And indeed, now I know that, that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Nothing can be laid on my, at, at my charge because of my ministry here. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, and this sets the context of this whole self-defense. Uh, Paul is engaging in a preemptive strike. Right? He's engaging in a preemptive strike. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also, from among, you, among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves, 
Know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would not see his face, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Now, when Paul is talking about the, the um, arrival of false teachers after he leaves, false teachers are going to come in among them. He is telling these bishops, he's telling these elders that they have to defend the flock. The Lord Jesus Christ uh, laid down his life, shed his blood to purchase this flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And Paul knew that there was absolutely no way to defend this congregation without defending himself. Okay? Let me say that again. There are certain circumstances, certain conditions under which you cannot defend the sheep. A, a shepherd who won't fight for his own life is going to be incapable of fighting for the sheep's lives. If, if the shepherd is simply being attacked because he's an individual who happens to be there, he should receive it with meekness, understanding that it's better than he deserves, and he cannot get on a high horse and say, well, I am so important, I'm too important to be treated like this or to be attacked like this. But an elder is not a private person. A minister is a public person, and when people attack you in your public person and, and in your role as an officer of the Church of Jesus Christ, reluctance to defend yourself is betrayal of the cause of Christ. It's betrayal of the church. It's a betrayal of the sheep. And Paul is not being, this is not Paul's egomania coming out. Paul is telling us what a faithful minister he was, and when he told us how, how hard he worked, and when he tells us how humble he was, and how he taught them from house to house, and how he did it with tears, and, and not with arrogance, and not lording it over the flock, and he, and he outlines this, and he, he's, he spells it out. When he does this, this is not an example of apostolic arrogance. This is an example of apostolic humility. And because we think that his humility is arrogance, it tells us how far removed we are from a biblical understanding of arrogance and humility and offices and structures and governments. And so we, because we're individualists, and this ties in with the previous talks, because we're individualistic, we think that whenever anyone speaks, they are always speaking simply in terms of their own person. We don't understand and I'm going to use some, uh, I'll, I'll use a uh, stark example, I think, that will help you. When uh, President Clinton says something, a lot of Christians say, you know, you roll their eyes, yeah, right, President Clinton said this. And we only think of him in terms of his own individual standing before God as an individual and nothing else. But he's an officer of the civil government. And when he speaks, the United States is speaking. All right? It's not just an individual who's speaking. The United States is speaking. And you can't, if you're an individualist, you, you don't understand the phraseology that I'm using here, private person and public person, right? Everybody, in an individualist culture, everybody is a private person. Everybody's just an individual and no more. But there will be times when you have to speak as a father and as a husband, not just, you know, John Smith, a father and a husband. There'll be other times when you are speaking as an elder or as a minister and not just as John Smith. There are other times if you're a magistrate, a civil magistrate, you have to speak in a public uh, setting as a public person. Offices have real existence. Offices have real existence and ministerial self-defense, if I can call it that, ministerial self-defense is a duty. And it is a duty which humble Christian individuals have trouble cultivating because it's alien to the way we think. We've been trained as individual Christians not to defend ourselves in this particular way. And there is much that's true in that sort of exhortation. There's, there is a carnal self-defense which should be uh, rejected and abominated. And we, we hate that. And we, we want to learn how to meekly take correction and meekly uh, suffer slanders and, and, and learn how to suffer as the Lord Jesus did uh, when he didn't open his mouth and, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. There's a demeanor and a character and a sweetness to that that's wonderful. But the world is not a simple place. The world is a, compli a complicated, disordered, untidy place. And you have to understand governments and understand offices and understand what the church is and understand what the officers, uh, offices of the church are. And if you assume that mantle and you are attacked 
in your person because of that mantle, and it's because of the cause of Christ, then reluctance to respond, reluctance to defend yourself as a minister of Christ is treachery. Now, you're betraying the cause of Christ, you're betraying the sheep, you're refusing to do what Paul does uh, in this passage, setting us, as I would submit to you, a wonderful example of ministerial self-defense. Now, guard your heart, guard, your, you know, guard against the flesh, because it would be very easy to say, well, I'm, I'm zeal for God's house has consumed me, and it's zeal to vindicate your own name and your own reputation. Uh, just guard, guard yourself, but guard yourself in both directions. Now, what are some of the common slanders? What are the, some of the common objections? What are the, some of the common uh, accusations that will be made? Now, in different, um, you are all coming from different places. Some of you are coming from churches that are just starting up. Some of you are coming from established churches that are becoming reformed. Some of you are from, or at least have been from, established reformed churches that are in the process of becoming unreformed, and you're fighting it. Um, you know, there are all sorts of uh, different angles uh, to this. So what do you do? Suppose you, you begin taking a faithful stand uh, over many of these issues, and you learn your priorities, you have been studying the scriptures, you, you think you've got a clear picture of it in your mind, and you begin taking certain concrete steps to bring the church or your session of elders or whatever it is into closer conformity with the Word of God. And you say, this is something we have to do. What are some common objections? What are some common accusations? Everybody is just following one man. This, who died and left you, Pope? Who, um, who, who told you that you get to come in and tell everybody else what to do? Uh, what book have you been reading lately? Um, what, why, where do you get off telling us to do this? And I don't, I don't like it that people are just following just following you. This is what the objection is. They're just following one man. They're obeying you. They're imitating you. They're not thinking for themselves. And Well, what does the Bible say to do? Should they be considering the outcome of your way of life? Should they be imitating you? Should they be following you as you follow Christ? Well, absolutely and most certainly. That's not a, that, that by itself is not an accusation. Now, of course, if you've got a a person, a man on the session of elders, and the other elders can't um, can't restrain him, can't tell him what to do. He's unsubmissive. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's boastful. And he, of course, he's disqualified, and he should be removed. The fact that these false accusations are commonly levied against godly people does not mean that these accusations cannot be true. Okay, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. All right. Um, but godly people, if, if God is pleased to grant reformation, he will do it the way he has done it again and again and again in the past. And that is by raising up godly men who lead. Right? That is what he's done over and over and over again. And when he raises up godly men who lead, those godly men will be attacked because they are leaders. People are just mindlessly following you. You're the Pied Piper of Hamlin. You're just leading people off. They're not... People aren't studying their Bibles. They're just listening to whatever, they, whatever you tell them uh, to do. That is a common objection. Secondly, uh, well, let me, say, let me say something parenthetically here. Uh, when men are attacked, when these godly men are attacked, it is oftentimes much, much harder on their wives. Okay? Uh, so what happens is, you know, somebody says something and the, the minister or the elder thinks it's funny, and he, he, he just he just laughs. But you know, when his wife hears about it, she takes it amidships. You know, just oh, just and uh, and it takes it, quite honestly. If you're if a woman is married to a godly man who is loving her as Christ loved the church, and he's treating the kids as he ought to be treating them, and he's bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and she thinks he is wonderful, to have him reviled and slandered and dragged through the dirt and and have his character and his motives impugned and all these things, uh, she is the one person in this whole town that knows how false these things are. Okay, she's the one person who knows. She's the one person who can refute all the charges and can't say anything. Okay, do you, do you sit, get the scenario? She's the one who can refute it all and can't say anything. Um, one time, this is, uh, there are a number of uh, 
funny stories relating to this, but at least funny now. Um, uh, for, for Nancy, my wife, a number of years ago, one time a gentleman wrote a letter to the editor um, of the local paper here, and it's, the whole letter consisted of, uh, editor, Doug Wilson is a complete idiot, and then signed his name. That, that was the text of the whole letter. And um, I forget what I'd done to bring it on, but it was something, you know, anyway. Uh, he wrote this letter, Doug Wilson's a complete idiot. And, of course, my dear wife, she opens up the evening newspaper. <laughs> Doug Wilson's a complete idiot. And, uh, and so I talked to her. And this, in her mind, in her thinking, this was a real turning point. So much she, she wound up clipping the letter and putting it on the re refrigerator. <laughs> and I, I exhorted her. She didn't wind up doing this, but I exhorted her. She, she ought to write a letter to the editor and say, Editor, Terry Lawhead doesn't know the half of it. <laughs> Which is quite, quite honestly true. But well, um, there, are, there are many situations and many settings where uh, a woman will say, I don't want to just sit here. I want to write a letter to somebody. I want to tell somebody. Can I meet with the elders? Or can I go to the presbytery? Or can I, you know... I, you know, he loves the kids, and he does this, and he's a wonderful man. And, and to have him attacked in this way, I know that these things just aren't, uh, just are not true. Uh, I hope to, that what I say here at this point for wives is encouraging. It may not sound like it's encouraging uh, initially, but this is the station to which God has appointed you. Right? This is the station to which God has appointed you. The defense, the defense that you want to be to your husband, you cannot be. Okay, the defense that you want to provide for your husband, you cannot provide. The only way that you could provide, provide him with a defense from a tax like this is to be a Job's wife, you know, curse God and die. You could get him to compromise. You could get him to back off. You could get him to stop doing those things that are provoking these attacks. And then he won't be slandered anymore because of the kingdom of God. But then, of course, that's because he's not useful anymore to the kingdom of God. So don't, don't seek to protect him, right? He was given by God to protect you. Uh, you're not given by God to protect him in this way. You're not given by God to protect him publicly. Now, you can provide a refuge. You can provide a place for, for him to recover. You can provide encouragement, solace, and comfort, but you cannot provide public protection, right? He is supposed to be the one fighting these battles, and when he gets knocked on the head, and when he's attacked, and when these things happen, uh, this is just part of the cost of doing business. Um, it's good for men to get knocked down. It's good for men to be involved in, in the battle. It's good for men to be involved in the fight. And this is the nature of the fight. And if I could add one other thing uh, connected to this, it's good for your boys to learn how to, to handle this. Uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of um, moms overprotect their boys and keep them from learning how to be warriors. Uh, when it says in Psalms that a man with a quiver full of arrows is blessed when he contends with his enemies in the gate, it's talking about the blessing of children. It really is talking about the blessing of children, but not the patter of little feet around the house and not cute little jammies with feet in them. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. He is talking about grown sons who are standing with their father, contending with his enemies in the gate. In other words, sons who have learned how to fight, sons who have learned how to do battle. Now, of course, as Christians, we have to do battle in a certain way. We have to obey our, our, our general or the head, of, um, the head of the church. We have to obey uh, our prince. We have to do, uh, do battle with those that he says to do battle with in the way that he says to do battle. Reinterpreted obedience is disobedience, as Saul found out when he reinterpreted what he was supposed to do with the Amalekites. Reinterpreted obedience is disobedience. But when we take our signals from the Lord Jesus, we realize that fighting is part of it. So, uh, wives, uh, you are given by God as a helper to your husband. And if he is a public person, if he's a minister, if he's an elder, then he is supposed to be attacked. If he's not attacked, he's not doing his job. All right? If he's not attacked, um, then something is seriously wrong. And it's going to be hard for you to take and just be silent, pray for him, and stay in the station that God has appointed you to. And, and don't be afraid to stay there, and don't be afraid to be an encouragement to your husband as he uh, continues to stay faithful in the battle. Don't ever uh, try to get him away from hard knocks because you love him. If you, if, if you love him, don't turn him into a wimp.
Right? If you love him, don't beseech him to stay out of that sort of uh, conflict. And I know it's hard, it's difficult, it's hard to do, but it's absolutely necessary. Reformation cannot happen without battles. Reformation cannot happen with sharp battles, with severe battles. So that was a, a parenthesis. Everyone's just following one man. That's one objection. Objection number two, that one man has sinister motives. This refers back to Jonathan Edwards' comment. I was often charged with, with acting only from sinister views. That one man has sinister motives. And, of course, the sinister motives could be varied, depending on your personality or, or what your circumstances are. Various uh, charges can be made with varying degrees of plausibility. So there are some slanders which will be levied against you if the enemy was foolish enough to make them. Everybody that heard the slander would just laugh. It was just, you know. And sometimes people pick the wrong one, and they, <laughs> and they do that, and everybody thinks it's a riot. And, um, well... Uh, but oftentimes they're, they're more clever and they will pick one that at least has a degree, of surface degree of plausibility. This one man has sinister motives. Uh, what's one possible? Well, he's power tripping. He wants to run the show. He thinks he's the Pope. He thinks he gets to tell everybody what to do. He thinks this, he thinks that. He's, um, he's engaged in various forms of power tripping. That is a common charge. Now, we should look at some of the things that really do happen. The, these things happen. These sorts of accusations have a degree of plausibility because there are pastors, there are ministers, there are elders in the world who are power tripping, who do abuse the flock. Uh, Peter warns us against them in 1 Peter 5. He said, uh, elders should serve willingly, not under compulsion, and not as lording it over the flock. Okay? They shouldn't be lording it over the flock at all. But because there are people who engage in that sin, there are elders who engage in that sin, that makes it plausible to accuse someone who is leading authoritatively or leading decisively in a particular direction of power tripping. He can also be accused, as, as Paul uh, shows in Acts 20, he can be accused of being greedy. He can be accused of being greedy. What does Paul say um, in verse 33? I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I have coveted no one's gold or silver or silver or gold or apparel. This is a charge, again, that sticks. It's, it can be made with plausibility because it is a charge which, unfortunately, for many pastors and ministers is true. There are many people who are, to use Christ's words, they are hirelings. They don't, they're not in it because they love the flock. They are in it because they, they like books. They like an indoor job with no heavy lifting. They like, um, they like being able to stay out of the rain. They like, you know, this is a... This is a nice uh, setup, this is a nice operation, and it's a good salary, and it's, I've got the status of a professional, and, and, and that is nothing uh, less than greed. That's nothing less than greed. It, you don't have to be building a multi-million dollar empire in order to be an idolater in this, in this way. Well, just because that charge is not true, just because that charge is not true does not mean that people won't make that charge. Um, and when you consider the life of the Apostle Paul, what sort of sacrifices financially does he indicate, just from what we gather from reading the history of his life objectively, was this man in it for the money? Does that, does that keep the charge from being made? He has to come to the people and say, I am not, uh, I am not in this uh, for the money. Now, the one time that that charge was made about us, you know, fortunately, th this was one of those things that was made at the wrong time. Um, <laughs> if I, you know, this, this charge was levied against us one time many years ago, and it was one of those hilarious sort of situations. It, at that time, we were uh, scraping, just barely making it, scraping through. And, and if I'm in it for the money, then I am really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid and corrupt. <laughs> well, that's a plausible charge that can be made because many people are in it for the money. Another, another thing that is uh, uh, a uh, charge that can be plausibly, plausibly made against one man or a collection of men or a group of men on a session of elders, whatever it is, is that they are uh, greedy for something other than material gain. They're greedy for reputation. They, they want to... Um, and there are all sorts of uh, ways that this, this can be leveled. When, when Reformation starts to happen, and 
and people who are engaged in doing this start to connect with one another. And there are various uh, reformed conferences and places where um, people in the reformed world, and in many cases big guns or big names in the reformed world, are gathering at different conferences. And, and you get invited to a particular conference or you go to a particular conference. And, and again, first guard your heart. You don't want to uh, fall into the game of, as I was saying to R.C. Sproul the other day, you know, um, now, many of you might be coming from churches where people say, who? You know, <laughs> who, who, you know, who is that? And so you're safe from this uh, slander or protection. But people could say, well, you're in this. You're be you became reformed because you just want to go schmooze with the big boys. You, you just want to go make a name for yourself. And you just are, you're just interested in advancing your career. You're just interested in climbing up this particular ladder. And so your, your motives are attacked and... Uh, and attacked, in, in many cases, uh, viciously. So that's another objection. You have sinister motives, and they can be power-tripping or greed or repu you know, you desire for a, a big reputation. And there are other charges, obviously, that can be made of a sexual nature or different things like that. Just guard yourself. There are many people who want to see you fall, so don't. Uh, um, the next uh, objection, the next uh, accusation that is made, can be made, is that, yes, you're saying all the things that you're saying are true. They'll grant everything, everything you're saying is true, but I don't like, they say, your emphasis, right? You're, you're saying true things, but you, you've, got a, you've got a type of personality disorder that makes you emphasize the wrong things. Now, this, when you think about it, is a bizarre accusation. Suppose I were to say two plus two equals four. Is this bad if I say 2 plus 2 equals 4? <laughs> or 2 plus 2 equals 4? Or 2 plus 2 equals 4? What, you don't like my emphasis? <laughs> you don't like my uh, tonal inflections? Well, the issue is, is it true? Right? Is it true? Is it right? Is it biblical? And when that is said, then w the discussion is over. Now, some people, if, if they say it's something else, that it would be different. If they said... Um, Yes, you're saying true things, but your attitude is ungodly. Well, the Bible talks about attitude. The Bible addresses people who speak the truth in a cranky way. Paul says that we're to speak the truth in love. Paul says we're not supposed to be cranky or irritable. Or I, it, is, it is quite apparent, again, in the Reformed world, which is fractious, in many cases malicious, infighting, uh, Paul's description in Galatians of biting and devouring one another uh, comes to mind. And, the, and you'd think that all these people with so much in common, would it would be a reign of peace and harmony. Well, the fact that it isn't shows that there's something wrong with attitude and the fruit of the Spirit is missing it. But those things are clearly taught in Scripture. We are to put on tender mercies when we speak. We're to speak the truth in love, Paul says. And the truth is rigid and hard and unyielding. It doesn't give at all. It's like a skeleton. It's rigid. And love is like the flesh that fills it out. There are churches that are anatomically correct. Every bone is in its place. Every bone is in the right place. Everything is right there, but there's no flesh. There's no life. There's no... Um, they're dead. Every, the, the catechism is right. The confession of faith is right. Everything is anatomically proper and correct. But there's no flesh. There's no life. And then modern... And that's what many of the tiny, fractious, reformed churches and denominations are like. Everything is correct, but, but lifeless, dead. Uh, and the truth is glorious. They, people mumble their way through glorious creeds and confessions and mumble their way through wonderful hymns. But the modern evangelical world isn't any better because they go to the other extreme, which is what would it be like to have a human body with no bones in it? Maybe some of the doctors here can tell us. What, it, uh, what would it be like? To, we'd all be like beanbag chairs, right? Uh, you go to church and you get, are enveloped with this warmth, this goo, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> that just drives me crazy. Um, of course, we should have bones. We need rigidity. It has to not give, but it has to have flesh on it. Speak the truth in love. Well, when people come at you and say your emphasis is wrong, that's, that's not good enough. If they said you said that arrogantly, or if you said that pridefully, or you said that with a malicious, cutting, hurtful tone, and I rebuke you, that's concrete and objective, and then they can bring a brother and confront you again. That's something you can deal with. 
But how can you deal with this nebulous, your emphasis is wrong? Right? That's just a, a way of saying, I don't like what you're saying, and I, but I don't want to commit myself to refuting what you're saying. I don't like what you're saying, but I don't want to commit myself to refuting what you're saying, and I don't want to commit myself to bringing you before the elders for discipline because I can't prove that either. So I'll just find this middle area where your emphasis is wrong. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is, so I don't have to listen, but I don't have to do anything either. Lastly, another accusation is you can't get along. Right? You just can't get along. You're cantankerous. You fight people. You, uh, you pick fights that are... Uh, just dumb, stupid fights. Now, we have to be very careful here because I, I want to emphasize strongly that we should only fight at the center first and we should work our way out to the outside. We should always be concerned with central issues first only. Okay? We don't ever start the battle off at the periphery. At the same time, because we live in a theologically illiterate age, there will be many wish issues which are central but which virtually no one understands to be central. Okay? There are issues which are central, but which virtually no one understands to be central. And when you pick a fight over that, which you ought to do, because you understand what's at stake, they are going to accuse you of not listening to the talks. You know, I got a tape of that conference you went to, and they said you should only fight about central things. And here you are wrangling about this, seating arrangements at Antioch. Isn't that what Paul was fighting over? Right, certain men, Peter was eating with the Gentiles before certain men uh, came, and when they came, he withdrew himself. He wouldn't have table fellowship with them. And Paul rebukes Peter publicly to his face. And why? Not because it was how they sat at the potluck. It was because the gospel itself was at stake in the seating arrangements. The gospel is, itself was at stake in where Peter sat. And Paul understood that. And I dare say there were a bunch of people in Antioch that didn't understand that. They didn't understand what the hubbub was about. This is, uh, this is the case in the Athanasius, Athanasian, uh, uh, Athanasius's controversy over the Trinity and the, the, the uh, controversy uh, between the Orthodox party and the Arian party boiled down to one letter, uh, whether Christ was of the same substance or similar substance, and the two Greek words were distinguished by one iota, one little tiny uh, one little tiny letter. And what's the hubbub about? Why, why all the fracas about this? I'll finish with a, uh, an illustration that uh, Francis Schaeffer gives in one of his books that I think is very appropriate. You can go to the top of a mountain ridge and look at the, the, if there's a divide there, and there, there's snow here and there's snow here, and the snow is only six inches apart. Right? But this snow, when it melts, is going to wind up in the Gulf of Mexico. And this snow, when it, winds up, it melts, is going to wind up in the Pacific Ocean. It's a watershed, right? Now, you can't just randomly go around in the snow and pick snow six inches apart and say, oh, I, I've got it, six inch, the six-inch rule. Right? It matters where it is. It matters, and, and this is what, why it calls for wisdom, right? In certain places, that six-inch difference is all the difference in the world. On a multitude of other issues, that six-inch difference is six inches, and that's all it is. And it's not a big deal, and, it, and we shouldn't fight over it. So we have to, again, confess our sins and humbly come to the Lord and ask him to protect and keep and sustain us and give us the wisdom to be able to distinguish between these various things. Lastly, again, I want to reiterate the, the central distinction that you want to make is learn how to distinguish between yourself as an individual who's fallen and forgiven and, uh, and, needs, for, and, and needs further forgiveness and charity to be extended to you and distinguish uh, between yourself as a public person who to that extent is representing the cause of Jesus Christ. And when it's the one, just take it. Right? When it's the one, just take it. Eat it. It's good for you. Right? Even if it's wrong, it's good for you to just take it. Um, especially if you are um, if you're equipped to be an elder, that means you're able to answer people when they object. And so consequently, if you're anything like I am, uh, people will come and they'll start to say, I, I've been working up courage to talk to you for two years about this thing and I wanted to confront you. And they start to confront you about something. And let's say they're a dear brother and they really are trying to serve God, but let's say they're all messed up, right? And, and they're 15 seconds into this thing that they've worked up courage to present for two years and you know that you could pull open a drawer and hand them a ream of paper that would refute everything they're saying. 
You've been through this all before, and you know they're objectively um, wrong. What do you do? Just shut up. <laughs> Just don't say anything. You hear them out. And you say, well, um, let me thank you for coming to me, and let me pray about what you say, and let me talk to my wife about what you say, and I will think about it and pray through it, and let me repeat back to you what you've said so that you can be sure that I got it right and got your criticism right, and then I'll get back to you. I'll come back to you on that. They know that you've listened. They know that you've heard. In a situation like that, there's no reason to defend yourself. But there are other situations where you should, your antenna should be out, and if it's, the, if it's the kingdom that's being attacked, if it's the cause of Christ that's being attacked, if it's Reformation truth that's being attacked, then you need to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go along with that. And people are going to accuse you of being arrogant, proud, um, haughty, um, obnoxious, unteachable. And um, Jesus says, well, is that too great a price for you to pay to be my servant? And the answer is no, that's not too great a price. That's, again, part of the cost of doing business. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the responsibility to be your servants in a fallen world. And Father, we do confess our own sinfulness. We confess that there are many ways that we fall short of your standards. And we want to keep that present in our minds at all times and, and at the same time have a gratitude and a thankfulness for the justification you've provided. Father, at the same time, I pray that you would teach us how to be zealous for your kingdom and how to be zealous for it even when the enemy is clever enough to attack that kingdom in some way that's connected to us. Father, I pray th these things are beyond us, and I pray that you would teach and instruct us uh, for your son's namesake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was Douglas Wilson's talk, Dealing with Opposition to Reformation from our audio collection titled Working Toward Reformation. If you'd like to hear the rest of the talks, you can find them at canonpress.com.